Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good Sunday afternoon to everyone. It is Sunday, May the 1st, 2022. It is currently 2.36 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live Two stories above a street right here in Abilene, Texas. I said that date relatively fast. Did did you catch that? It's Sunday, May the 1st, 2022. May the 1st. Now, I know it sounds like an old person when I say, well, can you believe it's already May? Yeah, I I know that that sounds like that, uh, you know, like something an older person would say. But um, I do, I, I, I do have to stop myself and go, okay, May the 1st, how many broadcasts, how many podcast episodes have I done since January the 1st, 2022? If we look at how many, I, I don't, it's, it's probably in the hundreds. I would have to go back and count. Maybe it's not quite that many, but we've done a lot of podcast episodes since January the 1st, and now here we are, May the 1st, and I always, maybe I shouldn't do this, but I always have to stop and ask myself, so what did we actually accomplish in all of those podcast episodes? What did we accomplish in hour after hour after hour, sitting in front of a microphone, talking about doctrine, theology, talking about what's going on in the world of Christianity, doing Bible study exercise? What have we, and I say we because if you've been listening, well, you've been investing your time. So we, what have I, what have we, what have you, what have we accomplished since January 1, 2022 to May the 1st, 2022? I I, I don't, it's always hard to tell. It's always hard to tell. I, I could say the same thing, you know, for, for all the churches uh, all around the United States of America and around the world. Sermon after sermon has been preached since January 1, 2022. Today was May the 1st, 2022. More sermons were preached. More Sunday school lessons occurred. More small groups happened. Tonight, there'll be more sermons preached. What, what, what did we accomplish? And I think that it's very important to understand and draw a distinction here. I, I think this is very important. I think a lot of times... And 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 we we I, this is not really the point of this podcast episode, but you know what? The microphone's live, so I'm just going to talk here. So so just listen to. It. I think it's important to distinguish between the externals of Christianity, the external preaching of God's word, the external teaching, external small groups, external Sunday morning service, external podcast, the external workings of Christianity, preaching, teaching, all the different things we may be doing, counseling, discipling, witnessing, evangelism. Those are the external actions, right? We see those actions. They are external. We hear the words. We see the actions. They are external. I think it's very important to draw a distinction between the external actions and the internal workings of God using those actions for his purpose and his glory. In other words, we all we can do is focus on doing what we're called to do. That's the external. The internal working of God using the preaching of the word through the with the spirit of God to accomplish his purpose, to do things, to change lives, to bring people to, to faith, 
whatever the case may be, we really have zero control over that. So it's easy to sometimes I can look at the external preaching and teaching. What did it really accomplish? I mean, how many podcast episodes have I done? What did it really accomplish? Look, I, I can't really know what it accomplished because I can only just look at the external things and an external response. Look, I think this is even true within the church. External response, external people making a profession of faith, external people, quote unquote, walking in an aisle, external people joining the church, external people being baptized. Those are just external things that don't necessarily prove any actual spiritual reality. Right, an internal reality. They just ex- they just show an external reality, and so sometimes we become so preoccupied with the external things, external, 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 that we just realize that so much of 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 the Christian life, the spiritual life, quote unquote, spiritual success, that is something sometimes happening in ways which we do not see, which we cannot measure, and so much of what we measure and what we see, really, in many cases can actually deceive us where we think that there's great spiritual victory, there's great spiritual success, but all it may be is numbers. All it may be is excitement. All it may be is programs. All it may be is a bigger building. Doesn't mean anything spiritual is going on. So we can't really know. We can't ever really know. We can't ever, ever really say that we, we just have to draw a distinction. Here's the external things that we see and do and the internal spiritual working of God and whatever may occur, may be happening spiritually, that stays unknown to us. We have to draw that distinction. Or at least I do. Maybe you don't, but I, I, I do. I think too many times Christians draw, they, they, they don't draw this distinction. So they're like, oh, that church is growing. That person has all of these people attending. That per- that has all the excitement. And they just immediately assume that means something great spiritual is happening. No, that just means something external is happening. Maybe something spiritual is going on, but you won't really know. You won't ever truly know. And I think that is important. But it brings up the issue of drawing distinctions, drawing distinctions. And if you were with us yesterday evening, we started talking about the significance and the importance in theology of drawing distinctions. We talked about the need and the importance of drawing a distinction between our posi- the positional reality of a Christian versus the practical reality of their lives. Positional reality before God, I am holy, I am perfect, I am without sin, I am perfectly righteous, and I am the I am these things because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. I am well done, good and faithful servant. That is true of me positionally. Perfect, ho- be ye holy as I am holy. I am holy in my position, I am righteous. All of those things are true in my position. In my practice, I'm still a sinner with a depraved nature who constantly falls short and constantly does not live up to what God calls me to be. That is true. There is a distinction there, the positional reality versus a practical reality. But there's another important distinction that must be made, and that is a distinction between law and grace. Law and grace. And that's what we started talking about last night. We pulled from an article that was written in 1949 uh, by uh, Dr. Merrill F. Unger. 
1949 at Dallas Theological Seminary. We were, we're relying a little bit on that. Now, if you, again, I don't know, I never know who's listening at any given time. We do so many live broadcasts that it's really, I know it's impossible for everyone to hear everything. But if for some reason you heard the live broadcast from around 10 a.m. this morning, we were, uh, well, we are doing a study of the book of Jude. And we spent, in fact, let me just go to the book of Jude really quick because I think there's some overlap here and this importance of drawing a distinction between law and grace. In the book of Jude, remember Jude set out to write to the people he was writing to about the common salvation. However, it was needful for him to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. He wanted to challenge them, exhort them, beg and plead with them that they need to, in a sense, agonize in a struggle, right, for the faith. And the reason this needed to be done is verse four, for there were certain men who crept in aware, unawares. Someone had, men have crept into the church unaware, now listen, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. We don't think that that is referring to uh, eternity past being ordained of this condemnation, that these were men who that of old, Old Testament, all the way back to the Old Testament, that the that false teaching and their way of acting and thinking had been condemned previously, right? But these men had been condemned who are ungodly, and here's the key, they had turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. They had taken the concept of God's grace and turned it in an opportunity just to, to just completely indulge the flesh and do whatever you want, unrestrained lasciviousness, doing whatever you want, right? That's what they had taken God's grace and they had done with it. And this morning, I spent a lot of time challenging us that, yes, there have been those who have abused God's grace by turning it into license. But sometimes our, sometimes what we do when we see God's grace being abused is that we fight it by running to an equal and opposite error. While they, they abuse grace, we try to fight for grace by pushing legalism and pushing the law. We almost, they are abusing grace. We retreat from grace, grab the law, and try to use the law to fight someone's misuse of grace, which is an equal and opposite error. We have to let grace be grace and law and grace must be understood and be dis and understood the distinction between them. All right. So we started talking a lot about this and we, we last night we ended by looking at one paragraph. I'm just going to read it this afternoon. I'm not going to do any explanation. You can go back and listen. I'm just going to read it at just to remind everyone. And then we're going to try to finish up this article on this sun on this May the 1st, 2022, a Sunday afternoon. And hopefully you're willing to use, use this time to think about this very important concept are these two concepts, law and grace, and the importance of drawing a distinction. So uh, Unger said this, let us first consider this, the contrast between law and grace. And this was the first one he presented. Law and grace present an independent and different rule of life for the specific period they represent. And I'm just going to read this. I don't have time to go back and explain all of this. Here we go. Law is connected with Moses and works. 
grace with Christ and faith. Law demands righteousness from man. Grace bestows righteousness upon man. I would rather say grace imputes righteousness upon man, but okay. Um, Then there, there was all kinds of scriptures we looked at. Law blesses the good. Grace saves the bad. Law requires merit. Grace is without human merit. Law demands its blessings be earned. Grace is a free free gift. Law is negative. Grace is positive. Law is prohibiting and demanding. Grace is beseeching and bestowing. Law ministers condemnation. Grace provides forgiveness. Law curses. Grace blesses. Law kills. Grace makes alive. Law shuts every mouth before God. Grace opens every mouth to praise to God. Law makes guilty men tremble. Grace makes him rejoice. Law puts a great and guilty distance between man and his maker. Grace brings guilty men near to his maker. Law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Grace says if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. Law utterly condemns the best. Grace freely saves the worst. The law was addressed to Israel only from Sinai to the cross and accomplished a peculiar purpose in condemning and leading to Christ. Christ is addressed to all kindreds and tribes, to whosoever will, and it is designed to save the worst and the most helpless whom the law has condemned. Those are some powerful words demonstrating the difference between law and grace. Now, I feel that we have not adequately taken that paragraph apart, but we've done what we can. It's there. If you would like a copy of that paragraph by Unger, just email me at newsif at yahoo.com. Or if you're a member of the Discord channel, it's, it's posted. It's right there. So you can just look at it right there. And anything else in this article will be posted at the conclusion of this live broadcast. All right. So here we go. Now, Unger continues drawing this distinction between law and grace. And he, he says that if we confuse these, we end up in complete, utter darkness and confusion. But if we want to be in the light and we want understanding, we got to draw a distinction between law and grace. So here's the second thing he, he argued. Law and grace present a reversal in the order of divine blessing and human obligation. When it comes to divine blessing and human obligation, here's God's divine blessing, here's human obligation, law and grace, well, they reverse this order. There's a reversal in this order when you look at it from the perspective of grace versus the perspective of law. Law has one order, Grace has a different order. It reverses the order. Let's consider this. Here we go. The varying order is simply stated thus. Here's how the order basically works, and it's simple. Do this, and you'll live. All right? That's the basic order. Do this, and you will live. Where the divine obligation is given first, 
and the divine blessing blessing is made to depend upon the faithful discharge of that obligation. That is that is the order is simply stated. Do and live. And it goes like this. The divine obligation is given first. There's the divine obligation. Do. Then the divine blessing is dependent upon the faithful discharge of that obligation. All right? So the divine obligation, do this. The, the divine blessing is live, but it's dependent on you discharging the obligation of do. That's really the order of law. Do this and you'll live. The divine obligation, do this. Don't do this. The divine blessing, if you don't, if you do, you get this. That is the order of law. Grace is going to reverse this. Here we go. It's very important. Grace, in contrast, says, live and do. Wow, that's that's a radical difference. The law, do and live. Grace, live and do. Under grace, the divine blessing is poured out first. The human obligation follows. The law says, if you do good, I will bless you. But grace says, I have blessed you. Now go do good. Law is thus seen to be on a conditional covenant of human works, while grace rests upon an unconditional covenant of divine works. A Christian life that is built on grace understands that God says, live, then do. Or we could say it this way, I have blessed you. Now do good. The, the motivation for doing good is not, not divine obligation, not fear of punishment. It's no, you do good because of the divine blessing. You have now been blessed. Now go do good. The motivation, your motivation as a Christian should be God's grace. That's what should motivate you, not obligation or fear. Now, many within Christianity felt that there's this, they, they would condemn this idea of a cheap grace or a free grace. And they're like, no, we can't have this because, because people are just going to abuse this and say they believe in Jesus and do whatever they want. So they almost come in and impose a law-based concept. And it goes something like this. They may argue that you've been saved. They may argue that you've been saved first. They may argue that you've received the divine blessing first, but they, they almost cancel it out by saying something like this. Okay, you have been saved by God's grace, wonderful and great. But if you've truly been saved, you will do this. So it, it almost turns into this. Do this and prove you are alive. It still becomes a very law-based idea. Do this to prove that you are alive. If you're truly alive, if you've truly been blessed, if you're truly a Christian, do these things in order to prove your salvation so you're constantly living under the shadow of a never-ending test. You're constantly having to test yourself to see whether you are saved. I know some people are going to go to 1 John. We've already talked about 1 John. In, in past episodes, we did an entire series. First John is a it's it's a test against Gnosticism. That's the context there. It's a, it's a it's a polemic against Gnosticism. It's testing people to see if they are following the Gnostic heresy. 
That's what that's really about. But people want to turn that, 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 hey, you're a Christian. You're saved. Wonderful. Now you've got to prove it. You've got to prove it. How do I know I'm saved? Did you do this? 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 If you didn't do this, then you're not saved. Meaning I have to do this in order to be saved, which I don't care what kind of word game you want to play. You've now just made works required for salvation. You can say, no, 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 no. You're saved. You do the works because you're saved. But if you don't do the works, you're not saved, meaning I have to do the works in order to be saved. Look, you can you can just hop on that hamster wheel and run in circles, and I don't care what kind of games you play. The reality is you're saying if you don't do this, you are not alive. So you better do this to live. But grace comes along and says, no, 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 I have blessed you. You have been saved not because of what you do. You have been saved not because of what you will do. You've been saved not because you may do, try to do, strive to do. You have been saved by faith or grace through faith because of Christ. Faith, Grace alone, faith alone because of Christ alone. You have been saved because of God's work alone. You are saved because of an imputed righteousness. You are not saved or you can't prove an imputed righteousness by a practical righteousness unless that imputed righteousness is an infused righteousness. So what a lot of Protestants do is they return back to Rome. How do you know you're saved? You'll do this, 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 and this. Well, wait a minute. How does an imputed righteousness make me do this, this, and this? It's imputed. So they almost argue for an infused righteousness, which then makes me do all of these good things, which then proves I'm saved. We almost revert back to a law-based system. I want to make sure you understand this. The order of law is do and live. The divine obligation is given first. The divine blessing is dependent on the faithful discharge of that obligation. That's what a lot of people do with salvation, right? Let me read that to you again. The divine obligation is given first. So what a lot of people do is you need to do this and this and this to prove that you're saved. They start giving out the obligation The obligation has to be done to prove that you're saved. So the divine obligation is first given. Then the divine blessing is dependent on the faithful discharge of that obligation. Well, if you you can't really rest in your salvation until you prove by fulfilling the divine obligation that you're saved. It's very similar to the exact same thing. But grace is completely different. Grace says this, I have blessed you now do good. The blessing comes before the quote unquote obligation. What motivates the to, what motivates me to work on the obligation is the divine blessing. What should motivate you in your Christian life is not to pass a test to prove you're saved. What should motivate you in your Christian life is that you have received God's mercy and grace freely been bestowed upon you. God's mercy. That's why in Romans 12, we read these words, Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What should motivate you to present your body is the mercy of God. Not if I don't do this, I prove that I'm not saved. No, I do this because I have been blessed in Christ with all spiritual blessings, not according to works, not according to anything I do, but because I have been saved, grace alone, through faith alone, and by faith 
I have been declared perfectly righteous. So my standing before God is perfect no matter what I do because I have the perfect obedience of Christ imputed to my account. But that should motivate me. That blessing should motivate me to do. What are you motivated by in your Christian life? Divine obligation or divine blessing? Live and do. I have blessed you. Now, do. All right? That's number two. They present a reversal and order of divine blessing and human obligation. Number three. They present different degrees of difficulty and the divine requirement and different degrees of divine enablement and its accomplishment. Now, that's kind of wordy, right? That's very wordy. Let's try to take this apart. I know it's a Sunday afternoon. I know a lot of times on a Sunday afternoon, I'll pick up uh, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis and kind of give us a, a nice little devotional. But the last time we worked on <laughs> The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis, it got very convoluted and, convol- and, and complex. So um, no matter what we do this Sunday afternoon, we're going to find ourselves with some, uh, some great uh, difficulty. But just try to hang in there. Put your thinking caps on. Here we go. We got to try to take this apart. This is very wordy, I know. Law and grace present different degrees of difficulty in the divine requirement and different degrees of divine enablement in its accomplishment. Now, when I hear divine enablement and its accomplishment, I get a little worried about what's about to be said. So I may end up disagreeing with Unger here. But we'll see exactly what he has to say. All right, thinking caps on, here we go. I quote, The Mosaic law was addressed to even the natural man, and its requirements evidently exceeded man's limitations, for there was universal failure on man's part, except in Christ's case. I'm going to stop right here. I will say the divine law has been given to all. All are called to obedience to that law. And everyone falls short of it. I'm going to say saved and unsaved. No one can keep God's law perfectly, whether unregenerate or regenerate, whether saved or lost. I know many within the body of Christ says, no, 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 no. When you become saved, you can do it. But if you can do it, we did an entire podcast episode called You Can Do It. If you can, then there would be perfect Christians. 2,000 years of church history, there are not perfect Christians. There is sin, failure, brokenness within Christianity and outside of Christianity. So God's requirements have never been met and can never be met by man. But Christ did meet all of the requirements. Now, I'm going to receive, I'm going to continue. I'm going to read this again. The Mosaic law was addressed to even the natural man, and its requirements evidently exceeded man's limitations, for there was universal failure on man's part, except in Christ's case, to keep the requirements because of the weakness of the flesh, right? So in other words, we could not keep it because of the weakness of the flesh. The divine enablement seemed nil, and man was left to his own unaided flesh, which thus became a universal demonstration of man's inability to keep the law and to be saved by human merit. Let's stop right here. I do agree that God gave his law and he did not give us the ability to keep it. I do, And he did not enable us to keep it or help us to keep it. I say saved or unsaved. 
So therefore, the law was never meant to save us. The law was always meant to demonstrate our sinfulness. Look, depravity lies within you, right? Depravity is something inside of you. It's there. Now, people may deny it, but the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things right? You are dead in your trespasses and sin. The, 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 the nature that we have is corrupt. It is there. It is ungodly. That is inside all of us, but it's hidden. I can't see it, right? You can dress up really nice. You can put on a three-piece suit. You can have a nice dress that goes all the way down to your ankles. You can, you can have modest makeup, modest hair, modest jewelry, modest everything. You can look like the epitome of righteousness and godliness and a good citizen. And you can be the most look, great looking people in the face of, on the face of the planet. But I know what's inside of you. The same thing that's inside of me. Depravity. And how is depravity made manifest? It's made manifest by God's law because God's law is there. And then you, you, no matter how good you may look, that law will reveal that you are a sinner and that you do not keep it. The law, think of it as, as an x-ray. It's an MRI. It's a CAT scan. Whatever you want, whatever imagery you want to use, you may, you may not see the problem, but once you're placed under God's law, boom, that problem shows itself. It manifests itself. And clearly God did not give us the ability to keep it because if he did, whether obviously not if we're unregenerate, but even as regenerate, if we had the ability to keep it, then there would be perfect Christians. But there's not perfect Christians. There's not perfect pastors. There's not perfect deacons. There's not perfect elders. There's not perfect bishops. There's not perfect anything. All right, but let's see where they have to go here. All right. Um, in contrast, grace has incomparably higher requirements, and its teachings are addressed only to the born again man who has, as the divine enablement, nothing less than the, the infinite power of God, of God's indwelling spirit. Now, I have a problem here. This seems to say once we, grace gives us the ability, well, and oh my, now they don't go so far to say Unger doesn't go, but it seems to imply that now we have the infinite power of, the, of God inside of us, seeming to imply that now we can obey. Now, a lot of Christians teach this. Before salvation, you could not, right? You could not, that you were unable, you were dead, but now that you're saved, you can, you can. But I get so tired of that because when you say you can, you've got even Christians who say you can always then backtrack and put a limit. You can, but you can't be perfect. You have the infinite power of God, but not the power to be perfect. Well, then, then that's not the infinite power of God. If there's a limitation to how good I can be, no, because guess what? Even under grace, uh, this is very important. The old nature is still there. We do not believe in the eradication. Of the, if you hear that sound, that's my. That I've got a pencil pounding on the side of my hand. Okay, we we still have the old nature. So this is what I would say. This is very important. Law demands what man cannot meet. This is very important. Law demands what man 
cannot meet. It demands what man, it gives uh, what man cannot keep. Therefore, it condemns, it condemns, it condemns, it condemns. It reveals the reality of that depravity. Grace provides what man needs. The, 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 the righteous demands of the law are not met by what I do. They are met by grace. Now, listen, listen, listen. They're not met by grace enabling me to keep it. They're met by grace because by grace, God provides the obedience and the righteousness to the law. That's the whole point of our understanding of salvation. He does it. See, Catholicism teaches that I'm infused with a righteousness. Therefore, now I can start trying to strive to keep the law. No, 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 no. I completely reject that idea. No, the law demands what I cannot keep. It demands what I cannot give. It demands what I cannot do. So therefore, I'm in a perpetual state of condemnation. Grace comes along and says, stop, 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 stop. You'll never be able to do it. And grace is not here to give you the ability to do it. No, no, no. Grace comes along and says, someone already did it for you. All the law was kept by Christ. His obedience, active and passive, is imputed to you. So in grace, all the law is kept. In grace, all the law is met. In grace, I am not a lawbreaker. I'm a law keeper. In grace, I am perfectly obedient. That's why when the Bible says we'll be judged according to our works, I'm not talking about a works judgment determining rewards, whether we want, there are some people say that exists, some people do not. I'm not here to get into that debate. I'm saying that we could be judged for salvation based off works because every time judgment is described in the Bible, it's by, it's by works. I don't believe, a lot of Christians believe that, yeah, the Bible says we're going to be judged according to our works because our works will prove that we're saved. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. The, the, the demand of the law would be perfection, so your works would never prove you're saved because they would never show perfection, so you would be condemned. God's standard is be ye holy as I am holy. If you're judged according to your works, your works would never prove holiness, therefore you would be condemned. The fact that some people think that we can be judged according to our works and our works are going to prove we're saved is an absolutely insidious, horrible concept because you're, you're pretending that you're going to be better than you really are. No, this is the way it works. I'm going to be judged according to my works. Absolutely. And what works do I have? I have the imputed works of Christ. I have his passive and active obedience and his righteousness. So when I'm judged, those works are imputed to me. So Christ's works are my works. So guess what? Well done, good and faithful servant, because I am, well, I am a good and faithful servant in Christ because Christ is the ultimate good and faithful servant. All of his, all of his works are imputed to me. So I can be judged according to works because the works that God will see are the works of his son given to me by grace through faith. What the law demands, grace provides, doesn't provide me the ability to do it, provides me the finished work of it. So I have to I have to argue a little bit with Unger there. Unger seems to make it say, well, grace comes along and gives you the ability. Nonsense. 2,000 years of church history, Christians who have re, are recipients of God's grace, mercy, and blessing continue to sin, 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 sin. So we don't get the ability to do it. We get the finished work of it imputed to our account. 
Now, Unger, I hope you got that. that. That's some powerful stuff right there. That's some powerful stuff right there. Okay, now, Unger in his article here deviates from explaining or drawing the contrast between law and grace. And now he decides to speak here of the um, the errors arising from failure to observe the contrast between law and grace. If we don't understand the difference between law and grace, some errors will arise. And here are the errors that he believes arise. Number one, antinomianism. Antinomianism. This fails to see the right relationship between the two systems. It denies all rules over the lives of believers and goes to the extreme in affirming that because God saved by free grace, with holy without merit, men are not required to live holy lives. Antinomianism is the idea that, hey, you're saved by grace. You, you can do whatever you want. Now, li- listen, on one hand, I can do whatever I want because I've been saved by an imputed righteousness. But the point is, I'm not told to do that, and I am called to obey and follow, but what should motivate that obedience and following is not the fear of not being saved or the fear of not proving that I'm saved. I should do so out of being motivated by God's mercy and God's grace. Antinomianism says you don't even need to worry about it. In other words, you don't even have to do it. You're not even required to do it. There is, in other words, antinomianism goes so far to say there aren't any rules for you to follow. I believe that, no, we still have things we're called to strive to do, but we do so motivated by mercy and grace, not by obligation or fear, all right? So antinomianism is an error that fails to distinguish this. It just says all grace, no no longer any obligation, all right? Next, ceremonialism. Ceremonialism its incipient form uh, and, uh, insisted that believers keep the Levitical system, but the pre- present form is manifest in attaching saving virtue to ordinances, making them essential to salvation. salvation. So Unger says ceremonialism is a, dis- is a failure to draw a distinction between law and grace. So what this says is that, hey, here are these ceremonies in, in the Old Testament. You must be circumcised. You must do this. You must keep, keep the Sabbath. You, even in the Gospels, this was a major problem in the church. These ceremonial ideas were there, and they said, you must do this or you're not saved. You must, you must get circumcised. You must keep the Sabbath. You, if you don't do this, you're not saved. Well, in our day and age, in many Protestant churches, the ceremonialism still exists, but it goes something like this. You must do these ordinances, or you must partake in these sacraments, or you are not saved. It's still turning to a law thing that you must do something in order to be saved. That's ceremonialism. Next, Galatianism. That's, that's the word he puts here, Galatianism. This is the heresy that mingles law and grace, making justification partly by law and partly by grace, or insists that grace is given to enable an otherwise helpless sinner to keep the law. Now there, it's interesting, he mentions Galatianism here, but in that last thing that we talked about, he almost seemed to imply that we get the spirit, that grace gives us the ability. Here he seems to condemn that idea. So I don't know exactly why there are apparent contradiction here, but I do agree that Galatianism is a heresy that mingles law and grace. 
It makes justification partly by law and partly by grace. It insists that grace is given to enable someone who used to be helpless to now keep the law. Grace is not given to give me the ability to keep the law. Grace is given so that the keeping of the law has been imputed to me. It doesn't give me the ability to keep the law because someone who kept the law perfectly, their their keeping of the law is given to me. So in my position, I have already kept the law. And obviously, I don't get any special ability to keep the law. Or if I did, Christians would have demonstrated it for 2,000 years of living out perfect lives, which is not the case. In conclusion, Unger wants us to know the purpose of law and grace. Number one, the purpose of the law. It is to bring to guilty man the knowledge of his sin And then secondly, to demonstrate his utter helplessness and view of God's just requirements. It was a stern schoolmaster to drive helpless humanity and its helplessness to Christ to be saved by grace. In other words, the purpose of the law is to do this. It's It's to show you your sin. It's to reveal your sin. It's to show you your helplessness. And it's to drive you away from yourself. The law is there to say, look, you are a sinner. You are completely helpless. And as a result, it makes you like, well, then where's, where's the answer? Where's the, I'm a sinner and I'm helpless. Where's the, it should make you start looking around going, there's got to be an answer somewhere. There's got to be an answer somewhere. It's got to be an answer somewhere. Law brings to knowledge, shows your helplessness and drives you to a solution outside of yourself. The purpose of grace It is to demonstrate the great loving heart of God in the infinite depths of his loving kindness and to give opportunity for the expression of God's essential nature as love. God is love. This gracious display of this unfathomable love upon utterly helpless sinners by virtue of the finished redemptive work of the spotless lamb brings glory to God. Therefore, grace is bestowed that God himself might find infinite delight in the works of rescue and that his own great name might be glorified. So the first reason is God's glory. The second is man's welfare. Grace meets man where where law leaves him, utterly condemned, cursed, helpless, dying, like the man who fell among thieves. Grace plays the part of the good Samaritan and does all for him who can do nothing for himself and who, moreover, is worthy of nothing. The purpose of grace is this. It is to demonstrate God's love and mercy. It is to save the unsavable. It's to save those who cannot save themselves, and it's to bring glory to God. Law reveals sin, reveals our hopelessness and helplessness. It drives us away from ourselves. Grace comes along, shows us the great love of God. It's there to save those who cannot save themselves. It's to bring glory to God. And that concludes the article written by Merrill F. Unger in 1949. I always want to say 46, 1949. Now, if you would like to find this article online, you can uh, type in F-E-A, that's F-E-A, which stands for the Fundamental Evangelistic Association, F-E-A, the word today, so that's F-E-A today, all run together, 
F as in Frank, E as in Echo, A as in Adam. I'm not doing the phonetic alphabet correctly. It's been too many years since I was in the military. Okay. Uh, Frank, uh, Echo, Alpha. Okay, maybe. All right. FEAToday.org. FEAToday.org. You should find it there. It was published on April the 18th, 2022. And when I say published on April the 18th, 2022, on April the 18th, they republished the original article written by Unger in 1949. And you can find it all there. I'm going to also post the entire thing right now. I'm going to try. I'm going to post the entire thing right now in the Discord channel. I'm going to go to Discord, Theology Central, and it is now there for your reading pleasure. If you would like so much to look at it, and uh, just to help you. And of course, if you would like it emailed to you, just uh, email me, newsif.yahoo.com, and say I would like that article, or I'd like the link, or whatever you would like, and I will definitely help you out. All right. We're going to stop there on this Sunday afternoon. Hopefully that was beneficial. You can email me, newsif.yahoo.com. That's newsif.yahoo.com. Um, we will be back. I. I may do, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to do something else this afternoon. I kind of want to, but I don't know. Um, but we will be back at 6 p.m. Now, there's chances for thunderstorms in the area, so I'm hoping we don't have any major weather issues that's going to mess everything up tonight. But if everything works correctly, 6 p.m., I'll be coming to you live from the Sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and uh, we'll be talking about Matthew 24 tonight. Matthew 24, 15, the desolation or the abomination of desolation. Hang on, let me just read it correctly. Matthew 24, uh, I don't want to say it incorrectly. Matthew 24, 15, the abomination of desolation. I, I was hearing this, I was listening to discussion about it on the way home from church this morning. Abomination of desolation. And uh, we're going to look and see, was that fulfilled in 70 AD? Right, and that's that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at it from a preterist perspective, and uh, that should be an interesting discussion this evening. Uh, and that is a part of our ongoing Bible study exercise on Matthew twenty-four. We've now done ten parts, I think, on Matthew twenty-four. Um, if you would like to go listen to all of those, again, the best way to keep up with all of our content really it is just download the Church One app. That's Church O N E. Church, O-N-E. When you download the app, you're going to notice it's a generic app. You're not going to see Theology Central. You have to search for Theology Central. Once you choose us as the selected broadcaster, it becomes the Theology Central app, and then all of our content is broken down into series, and you can go Bible study exercise. You'll see everything from Matthew 24. You can go our Roman series, our series on Jude, um, Eye on Christianity, all of our commentary about what's going on in the Christian world. Just so many different series. They're all right there. And if you'll turn on all the no- all, all the notifications within the Church One app, you'll be notified every time we add a sermon, and you'll be notified every time we go live on the air. And since we go live so much, so many live broadcasts, it really, that we would be the best ones to choose because you would have an app that's constantly notifying you that something is going on. So um, versus just like, well, that they only put out one episode a week. Okay, well, do you really need a notification for that? You can just check it. But if you if you uh, if you keep up with us, four or five broadcasts a day sometimes. So there you go. All right.
Yeah. That, that's our little plug. And just think, it's free. The Church One app is free. So it doesn't cost you a dime. Cost us money. doesn't cost you money. All right? So, but we, we want to make it, a, we, we're trying to make our stuff available any way we can. All right, we'll stop right there. Hopefully it was beneficial. I was waiting to see if there was any questions. I don't see anything. Let me do something. Because the last couple of days, as soon as I close the, uh, I hit stop to go off the air, all of these messages show up. And I'm like, wait, what just happened? How come I didn't see any when I was live on the air? So let me look here. I don't think there are any. Nope, there's no messages. So awesome. All right, everyone have a great day. God bless.